Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this podcast we is going to be a bit of a departure from the normal topics of uh, biohacking that we discuss on this podcast feed. We're going to be delving deep into the philosophy of East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And this is the classic American novel about the shades of gray of human nature grasping at free will while striving towards the future. And I am today joined by my beautiful wife, Gagana. How are you doing today, babe? Oh, I'm okay. And so this was a book that you read before me, and you really liked it, right? Oh, yes. I read it in my early 20s, and the taste in my mouth after that was really nice. Like, well, I don't really remember a ton of things. I just remember the aftertaste. So we're going to revisit it here. And you actually started reading the book to me when I had pink eye. Yes, I remember this. And you forbade me from looking at my screen. So you sat there next to me and read me the book. Uh, you read me one of the most beautiful parts of American literature, which is where he is describing the Salinas Valley. Oh, yes. And this was very, very picturesque. Yeah, and it's describing it from the era when the Salinas Valley was the frontier of North America being settled by the pioneering folk. And it sort of made us want to go and visit Salinas Valley, right? Oh, we would love to, right? Hopefully, if it's not on fire. No. That might be, that might be an issue. We might have to go there with gas masks on. John. Which, you know, with the coronavirus... Maybe we should just take the face mask thing and wear gas masks instead. So, spoiler alert, guys and gals out there listening. I imagine there might even be some uh, high school students that are reading this book. And so they're listening to this podcast. They should. And we're going to synopsize the whole story arch here. So you may want to go finish the book first. Or perhaps you're looking for just the, uh, the notes on the book. And you're, uh, and you're, that's why you're listening to this. So we're going to delve into all of it. And so the book contrasts two characters, which is Kathy and Adam, who marry and they have two sons together. And I think we should probably talk about Kathy first, because she's the most striking character of the book. And so Kathy is a monstrous woman. Pure evil. And the major red pill in this book is that female evil is more insidious and dangerous because of men's naivete when it comes to women. Society is kind of on the outlook for evil men. We expect them. When it comes to men, we instinctually understand that human nature leans more toward evil than it does toward good. But when it comes to women, men, and society in general, suffer from the women-are-wonderful bias. We assume that women are harmless. Uh, And so you can consider the perverse modern-day phenomena of men simping for e-girls. In recent years, there's been a meteoric rise of the webcam industry where idiotic men send hundreds or thousands of dollars to women on the internet who they have no hope of ever meeting. Please don't do this, guys. If you need any proof of men's astounding naivete, consider that just recently the internet Celebrity actress Bella Thorne made $2 million in a single week by scamming her male followers into paying 
$200 for a single uh, sort of sexy photo of her. So since time immemorial, great books like uh, East of Eden have been trying to wake us up to the reality that the fairer sex, like the stronger sex, also tend to lean more towards evil than toward good. And so when we look at human evil, we must ask the nature versus nurture question. Are we born evil or are we taught to be evil? And in the book, the narrator suggests that Kathy, that Kathy's evil is inherent. Read this here. It is my belief that Kathy Ames was born with the tendencies or lack of them which drove and forced her all of her life. Some balance wheel was misweighted, some gear out of ratio. She was not like other people, never was from birth. But it's also hinted at that she was abused. Kathy learned when she was very young that sexuality, with all its attendant yearnings, and pains, jealousies, and taboos is the most disturbing impulse humans have. So the book is the book is hinting at kind of a a duality, a synergy of nurture and nature in regards to human evil. That some people have a some people are kind of genetic freaks. They're monsters, as the book says a lot of times. But that there's typically, I think it's hinting at the, the that there was some abuse of Kathy that maybe pushed her into becoming a bit more of a monster. Oh, well, to me, Kathy is pure evil. There was absolutely nothing good in her throughout the whole book. She abused her husband and her twin sons. Mm-hmm. And then she became a hooker, and not just a hooker, but she owned the best brothel in the Salinas Valley. Right, right. And she was actually a hooker before then, too. She was yes. a hooker on the East Coast, and then she just kind of continued in her, uh, in her hoeing ways. Yes, she was a hoe, um... Actually, do you remember how on her wedding night she slept with her brother-in-law instead of her husband? Yes, that was pretty that was pretty insane. Okay, so I contend that human evil is contagious. Evil produces more evil, particularly in regards to child abuse. There's this very morbid audiobook that I don't recommend listening to. I'll tell you just a little bit about it so you don't have to go listen to it. It's called The Origins of War in Child Abuse, which exhaustively breaks down the causality between child abuse and savage warfare throughout history. And so the book establishes the cultural phenomena of the killer mother archetype as a prelude to war. And I actually thought this was something really interesting. This is something I'd never noticed before I read this book. So throughout history, prior to a bloody savage conflict, there would be a beautiful yet violent feminine character prominent in the popular culture. You can think of Helen of Troy, for example. And so this, so the book posits that because many mothers, at least historically, abuse their children, that the killer mother archetype triggers childhood traumas inspiring lust for war in the men of a nation. And interestingly, Angelina Jolie's 2001 Lara Croft served as this archetype prior to the Gulf War and the United States' blood-soaked misadventures in the Middle East. So after 
learning about that, you'll never, you'll never kind of look at Lara Croft or Angelina Jolie the same, will you? So with Kathy, the veneer of civilized human nature is especially thin. A quote from the book here. Her head jerked up and her sharp teeth fastened on his hand across the back and up into the palm near the little finger. He cried out in pain and tried to pull his hand away, but her jaw was set and her head twisted and turned, mangling his hand the way a terrier worries a sack. A shrill snarling came from her set teeth. He slapped her on the cheek and it had no effect. Automatically, he did what he would have done to stop a dog fight. He, his left hand went to her throat and he cut off her wind. She struggled and tore at his hand before her jaws unclenched and he pulled his hand free. The flesh was torn and bleeding. He stepped back from the bed and looked at the damage her teeth had done. He looked at her with fear. And when he looked, her face was calm again and young and innocent. So in the book, they have a couple of sections like this where they're hinting at a, a monster that's just below the surface of, uh, of Kathy. And at the same time, she's perceived to be beautiful. Right. Yeah, when she's younger, she's pretty beautiful, apparently. But then she, uh, boy, she, she devolves. She becomes her, uh, over time, her inner ugliness, it uh, manifests itself physically over time. Yeah, she gets arthritis. Yeah, she gets really bad arthritis. And then she de- she has a big scar on her face. I don't think I don't think they showed that in the movie. No. No, no. I don't remember. What did you think about the movie? The 1955 version with James Dean? Well, I totally loved it. James Dean is like He's like the star in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of disappointed in that movie after reading the book because the movie just captures a little bit of the book. I mean, it it feels like with the movie, they were kind of just taking the setting of the book and then taking a bit of the story and then, and then putting it in there. There There's a lot of parts in the, in the movie that were inaccurate, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that it should have been a TV series. Yeah, I think they did a TV series later on. You're right, because it's such a long book that it kind of exactly requires that. So as you were mentioning, prostitution is a major theme in the book. Uh, Kathy is a hooker, and she eventually graduates into running her own whorehouse. And one of the things that kind of struck me about the book is it, it talks about how she she runs a very efficient whorehouse. She's apparently a really good prostitute, and then she's a great uh, madame. She She's a, a good businesswoman. And so I thought it was, you know, something that instead of deciding to be a, a wife and a mother, when she gets a great opportunity, you know, she, she pretty much has everything made for her. She, uh, this, she gets married to this guy who's a very easy to manipulate guy. And then he has a ton of money that he inherits from his father. And then he goes to buy the most prized farm property there in the Salinas Valley. And so she has everything pretty much totally made for herself, but she just throws away that opportunity, even when she obviously has like some some savvy and some intelligence to run to run a business. I thought that was I thought that was something. Well, she didn't want to be a housewife and locked down to the oven, John. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what she didn't want to be. She didn't want to be someone's plain wife who, you know, took care of his house 
of him and of his kids for him. That's what she didn't want to be. Yeah, so I guess you could say she was kind of like a proto-feminist. Even though she never says, she never quite says that in the book, but I guess that was kind of like what she was, she was uh, in rebellion against, against order in that sense. Well, yeah, she didn't want to be something else. She didn't want to be in chains. She didn't want to be within someone else's frame. Yeah, yeah. You know, she wanted to be in her own frame. That's why she cheated on her husband so many times. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a couple of sections of the book that I thought were kind of poetic. On prostitution, it says... <laughs> poetic on prostitution. Yeah, 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 yeah. Poetic on prostitution. There is great safety for a shy man with a whore. Having been paid for and in advance, she become she has become a commodity. And a shy man can be gay with her. They mean happy. They mean happy. Mm-hmm. And even brutal to her. Also, there is none of the whore of the possible turndown, which shrivels the guts of timid men. Okay, and then it also says, at the present time, the institution of the whorehouse seems to be seems to a certain extent to be dying out. Scholars have various reasons to give. Some say that the decay of morality among girls has dealt the whorehouse its death blow. And I w- I'm amazed at how cheap uh, prostitution was. Back then, it says, for example, a dollar. Pretty girls, mostly. And so I did the math on that, and inflation adjusted for 1890. This is about $28 in today's dollars, which that seems that seems really cheap, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Like $28. Disturbingly, Absolutely. disturbingly. I think even in Colombia, where I spent some time, I think uh, hookers would charge more than the equivalent of $28. <laughs> not, not that much more, though. And in America, I think the average is like $300. Yeah, and that's for a cheap whore in America. Now, hooker, she's a sex worker, remember? Yeah, yeah, a sex worker, we call them now. Okay, so let's talk about Adam. What do you think about Adam? Adam is a pretty principled man. You know, he's a very virtuous man. He's a very virtuous man who, unfortunately, falls very badly for Kathy and loves her until the end. Yeah, which is kind of which is kind of insane. And she resents him for that. Mhm. She resents him for loving her so much even though she purposefully purposefully cheated on him, hurt him, offended him so many times. So Adam is a case of really bad uh, women are women are wonderful bias. That's what he has. He has one-itis, definitely. He does have one-itis because he never, he never goes on to date anyone else. No, because he truly believes that one day she'll change her ways and she'll come back to him. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is super dumb to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I think Adam, he is a naive and thoughtless man. Uh, Kathy's evil is enabled by a naive lazy, and hopelessly blue-pilled man. We see how thoughtless naivete and intellectual laziness result in calamity. Adam rescues Kathy when her pimp beats her half to death. He then marries her on a whim. All the men in his life warn him about her, but he can't resist his provider instincts to wife her up, knock her up, and buy her a farm. From the book. She doesn't want the farm. Farm means a lot of 
work around the house, like cooking, cleaning, you know, doing stuff. I'm not sure for she her, doesn't though. doesn't want to do it. Because you can see in her scenario, Adam hires Lee to be the assistant. And so Lee does all the... Lee's doing, like, all the all of that hard work, all those domestic things around the house. Lee's doing all that stuff. And so Kathy basically just, she rejects a pretty cushy life that she could have had with a really wealthy man. Yeah, but she still didn't want to raise her two twins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She rejects them. Um, so it says in the book, Adam Trask grew up in grayness and the curtains of his life were like dusty cobwebs and his days a slow file of half sorrows and sick dissatisfactions. And then through Kathy, the glory came to him. A lot in East of Eden mirrors the stories we find in Genesis the first book of the Bible, where mankind is corrupted because Adam naively agrees to eat the fruit offered to him by Eve. And so I don't really think in the book, okay, we have Adam Trask, who is an analog for Adam in the Bible, but I don't really think that Kathy is an analog for Eve. No, 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 no. Kathy, in my opinion, is an analog for Satan. You think so? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm not, qu- I'm not so sure about that. Eve is... Okay, Eve has never been portrayed as the pure evil in the Bible, has she? No, no, she's not. She's very naive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll read here. The philosophical takeaway from the story of Adam and Eve is that evil and calamity, the the great fall is what it's called in uh, Christian theology, when mankind became, when we became evil, when we became so corrupt, that this uh, calamity happens often not because of malicious intentions, but because of naivete, gullibility, and foolishness. So God tells Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit. And Eve is tricked is tricked into eating it by the serpent who appeals to her vanity. And then Adam in the Bible simps to her and he eats it just to appease her. So yeah, in the book Edom, Eve is not inherently is not inherently evil. It's not a you know, it's not sexist saying that women are are evil. It's it's kind of it's kind of just showing how how both men and women are susceptible to being tricked. How we're both actually how both sexes can actually be kind of naive and how it's the how it's the man's job to kind of kind of be in charge cuz women might be a little bit more susceptible to being tricked. That's the kind of the takeaway from the book of uh, Genesis. Kathy is not really <laughs> tricked throughout the book. She tries to trick everyone else. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's, yeah, perhaps, maybe that's it. Maybe Kathy is more supposed to be, more supposed to, more supposed to be the serpent. I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I, if I found enough uh, allegorical evidence for that, but it's, but it's one, that's, that's one particular view that we can take on the philosophy. So why is Adam so simple-minded and naive? The book begins with him as a bright and good-hearted youngster, and he transforms into a great fool after serving in the U.S. Army fighting wars against the Native American Indians. As modern-day soldiers suffer from crippling PTSD after returning home from war, Adam is a man broken by his participation in war. So, if, yeah, so I think he is not like an inherently just idiotic and stupid person. I think he's a, a, a case of, of, of nurture where participating in war has broken him 
intellectually. And so this is why he's a lazy, gullible idiot throughout the rest of the book. Yeah, and because he's in love with her. He's blindly in love with Kathy. But I think I think it's also some of the PTSD. I think it's... Maybe. We would call it PTS, PTSD. Back then, they didn't have, uh, you know, nice acronyms and uh, uh, medical psychiatric diagnoses like that. But I think that's kind of... That's kind of the idea of what's going on there. So let's talk about the third character now, Lee. What do you what do you remember about Lee? Oh, Lee was like like a servant. Right. Servant of Adam. Right. So I saw Lee as being a thinker and not a doer. So he's one of the central characters of the book. He's a second generation Chinese immigrant who works for Adam there on his farm. Although he's more of like a house servant. He's not like a, he's not really like a laborer. So Lee is a deeply philosophical, thoughtful, and sentimental man. And so, for example, here's the passage where Lee is discussing free will. And actually, babe, would you read this while I go get myself a little bit more water? Sure. The American Standard translation orders man to triumph over sin. And you can call sin ignorance. The King James translation makes a promise in thou shalt, meaning that man will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word timshel, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. That says the way is open. That throws it right back on a man. For it, for if thou mayest, it is also true that thou mayest not. Don't you see? Nothing they may do can interfere with what will be. But thou mayest, why that makes a man great, that gives him stature with the gods, for in his weakness and his filth and his murder of his brother, he has still the great choice. He can choose his course and fight it through and win. Lee's voice was a chant of triumph. Lee said, These old men believe a true story and they know a true story when they hear it. They are critics of truth. They know that these 16 verses are a history of humankind in any age of culture or race. They do not believe a man writes 15 and 3 quarter verses of truth and tells a lie with one verb. Confucius tells men how they should live to have good and successful lives. But this this is a ladder to climb to the stars. Lee's eyes shone. You can never lose that. It cuts the feet from under weakness and cowardliness and laziness. Neither do I, said Lee. But I take my two pipes in the afternoon, no more and no less, like the elders. And I feel that I am a man. And I feel that a man is a very important thing. Maybe more important than a star. This is not theology. I have no bent toward gods. But I have a new love for that glittering instrument, the human soul. It is a lovely and unique thing in the universe. It is always attacked and never destroyed, because thou mightst. Aha. So you can see, right there, he's talking about the contrast in between the King James translation of the Bible and the newer translations of the Bible. And so the King James translation is establishing with a little bit stronger language the idea of free will, of human agency, while the newer version of the Bible is suggesting predetermination which is actually a pretty, there's a major philosophical difference between these two ideas. You know, uh, predetermination is the idea that the universe, that our lives are something like a movie. 
And a movie plays the same way every single time that you press the play button. It's It doesn't change. There's nothing that you can do halfway through a movie to change what the end of the movie is like. Whereas on the other hand, we have free will, which is the suggestion that we are in charge of our lives and that we can change the direction that our lives go in for better or for worse. And so the part of the philosophical takeaway is that to have real morality, we need to have a sense of free will. Uh, because if there's no free will, if there's just predetermination in life, then there's uh, then there's not a lot of point in being in being moral because you're not really we don't really have any choice of what goes on. So there's no uh, th- there's a an, a a contradiction between uh, morality and striving to be good and not having any choice about what happens in your life. Okay, I'm fond of saying that I aspire to act like a man of thought and think like a man of action. So Lee in the book is a cautionary tale of a man who fails to find that balance between pragmatic action and the world of thought and the uh, or the world of thought, ideas, philosophy. This character is oddly feminine. You know, there's there's all these characters where we see him like delivering the 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 food to Adam, wearing an apron, and you know, kind of. Uh, he doesn't exactly cuddle with Adam, but he's kind of there's a cuddle with Adam. He doesn't exactly cuddle with Adam, but there's like an odd there's there's a there's a femininity. To his character. I don't think he's secretly gay. I think there's some people on the internet analyzing it that way. Because there's some parts in the book where he talks about, you know, being sentimental and like wishing that he could get married. Wishing he could find like a nice Chinese young woman and have his own family. But he, he, he never has enough initiative in the picking up chicks department to make it happen. Maybe he's bisexual. No, 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 no. The book never hints at that. Okay. A couple of things on human nature. And you all will want to read the book review that I have linked below this because I have some stuff in there that I simply don't have time to cover in this podcast. So it discusses, this is in the beginning of the book, actually, our our failure to think long-term. And it never failed that during the dry years, the people forgot about the rich years. And during the wet years, they lost all memory of the dry years. It was always that way. And that was from the very beginning when it's describing the 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 thirty year rainy season, dry season cycles that the Salinas Valley goes through. And then it says, "No one who is young is ever going to be old," which is how that's how young people always feel. Okay, it says on boasting, you can boast about anything. If it's all you have, maybe the less you have, the more you are required to boast. Let's see, on psychopaths. No, to a monster, the norm must seem monstrous, since everyone is normal to himself. To the inner monster, it must be even more obscure, since he has no more visible thing to compare with others. To a man born without conscience, a soul-stricken man must seem ridiculous. To a criminal, honesty is foolish. You must not forget that a monster is only a variation, and that to a monster, the norm is monstrous. 
And then in the book, it talks about how alcohol makes you more of what you are. The transition came to Kate. And in the book, Kathy changes her, her, names, her name to Kate. So when we say Kate, we're talking about Kathy, yeah, the monstrous. Her name is actually Catherine. Catherine, yep, yep. Uh, yeah, I guess she goes by all three at different points in the book. Yep. Quote, The transition came to Kate almost immediately after the second glass. Her fear evaporated. Her fear of anything disappeared. This was what she had been afraid of, and now it was too late. The wine had forced a passage through all the carefully built barriers and defenses and deceptions, and she didn't care. The thing she had learned to cover and control was lost. Her voice was, her voice became chill and her mouth was thin. Her wide set eyes slitted and grew watchful and sardonic. I can't imagine such a beautiful woman having thin lips. Usually, women with fuller lips are considered beautiful. Yeah, that's true. So, in the book we learn, in vino veritas, the people become more of what they are when they drink. Okay, on America. This book stimulated a nostalgic patriotism in me, I'm an American, for an imperfect yet optimistic America. And in God you trust. Right, right, right. Okay. In Selena's Valley, the future of America is bright and nearly everyone is hopeful. And now in 2020, that America is gone. I once wrote an article by the title of By 2021, We Will Know If Western Civilization Is Doomed. And it's not 2021 yet, so I can't tell you if we're doomed, but the 22-year-old Bella Thorne making $2 million in a week for a scammy, slutty photo is not a good sign. It's not even a slutty photo. It's a black and white, super vague photo. Yeah, well, it's kind of slutty. I, I thought it was kind of a slutty photo. And it's amazing that she made two... Two million dollars off that. That is... It's not a nude, though. That is not a, not a good sign. If America is ever to be made great again, I think that it will be the most historically unprecedented comeback ever. So the book talks about uh, the national, the civic nationalism and hubris of America. We all have that heritage. No matter what old land our fathers left, all colors and blends of Americans have somewhat the same tendencies. It's a breed selected out by accident. And so we're brave and overfearful. We're kind and cruel as children. We're overfriendly and at the same time frightened by strangers. We boast and are impressed. We're over-sentimental and realistic. We are mundane and materialistic. And do you know of any other nation that acts for ideals? We eat too much. We have no taste, no sense of proportion. We throw our energy about like waste. In the old lands, they say of us, that we go from barbarism to decadence without an intervening culture. Ooh, that's a, an interesting passage on the American character, which has, and of course that was written uh, nearly a hundred years ago, I believe. So we've changed quite a bit, but in some ways we haven't changed. And then the book comments on uh, Western chauvinism. When he thought of Chinese beauty, the iron predatory faces of the Manchus, which is the Man Manchurian, like the Manchurian state, I believe, 
came to mind, arrogant and unyielding faces of a people who had, who had authority by unquestioned inheritance. And so I think that the book is uh, unapologetically a uh, Western chauvinist type of book. Uh, in the book, for example, you can see with the character Lee, some people might say that Lee is a portrayal of uh, multiculturalism, and I don't really think so. I think the character of Lee is a healthy portrait of civic nationalism, which is where we don't really have multiculturalism. We have proper integration. You know, the the character Lee, at least by the end of the book, he is not like, he's not like speaking Chinese and marching in the streets for Chinese Lives Matter or anything like that. Lee is uh, very much an American. Lee reads the Bible. Lee reads, uh, it sounds like a lot of other things in Western philosophy. So he is a He's a totally integrated kind of person, which I think is a I think is a healthier uh, vision of civic nationalism, certainly than what we have now in the United States. And so they talk about they comment in the book about the decay of morality for the world was changing and sweetness was gone and virtue too. worry had crept on a corroding world, and what was lost, good manners, ease, and beauty, ladies were not ladies anymore, and you couldn't trust a gentleman's word. So in the, you know, now a lot of people talk about the decay of morality, especially in regards to America, and it's uh, something to read that even back then, a hundred years ago, they were seeing themselves as you know, as, as falling from grace, so to speak, which is, it kind of poses the question of whether this is kind of like a universal sentiment that people tend to have about their country and their culture at any point, that it, it perhaps it's at any point in a country's history and culture, the people will say, oh, we used to be so much better. You know, in the past, maybe it was 20 years ago, maybe it was 50 years ago, maybe it was 100 years ago. We used to be, you know, a paragon of moral virtue then, but now we've now we've decayed so much. I, I kind of suspect that that's the case. So on war, the United States was the greatest and most powerful nation in the world. Every American was a rifleman by birth, and one American was worth 10 or 20 foreigners in a fight. We learned that the war, and this is talking about World War I, we learned that the war was not a quick, heroic charge, but a slow, incredibly complicated matter. There were people who gave everything they had to the war because it was the last war. This is World War I. They, they thought it was... People foolishly at the time thought World War I was going to be the last war. It was going to be the war to end all wars. And boy, that was kind of optimistic, hopeful, but really naive thinking, wasn't it? Okay, back to the book. And by winning it, we would remove war like a thorn from the flesh of the world, and there wouldn't be any more such horrible nonsense. There is no dignity in death in battle. Mostly, that is a splashing about of human meat and fluid, and the result is filthy. So the book hints at a red pill, about the world wars. So in the West, in America, we have this myth. Uh, it's part of our civilizational foundation myth, in fact, that the world wars, World War I, World War II, were virtuous wars for us to fight. And I have watched, oh geez, I've, every single documentary about the world wars that I can get my hands on, I've uh, read a bunch of books about them, and 
my take on this is that especially World War One, but World War Two also, were they were big government programs. And like almost every single big government program, they were they were big scams. They were a big waste of money. They were just a, a huge monstrous opportunity for the government and industry and international finance to 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 waste a ton of money and to enrich themselves and to centralize power a lot more and especially in the case of world war 1 there was there was no good reason at all for the united states to be involved with world war 1 if the united states had not gotten involved with world war 1 it would have been a significantly shorter war there would have been a whole lot less uh, loss of life in that war. If the United States had not gotten involved with it, essentially you would have had, you would have had a small shifting of, um, borders. The German border would have been a little bit further into France. Uh, uh, Alsace-Lorraine would have been a permanent property of Germany. You would have had a little bit of a shifting of the borders um, here in the Balkans. It would have been limited to kind of a, it would have been limited to like, there would have been death. It would have been terrible, but it would have been a small uh, territorial. It would have been friction amongst the border of of some of these empires, you would have had some of these uh, large empires that existed at the time would have would have broken up into smaller countries, more reflective of groups of people living there, which really probably would have been an improvement. But instead, the United States got drawn into it. And then as a result, uh, there was the uh, Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Um, as a result, we had uh, breakup of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. And so you look at the total... Which was, which was a blast. A blast? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the broke of the Ottoman Empire was a blast, John. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yes, we're here in the Balkans, so we're no, we're no fans of the, Otto, of the Ottoman Empire. No, we are not. Okay, so here's an interesting section. Listen to this, babe. Okay, so this is on pioneers versus the intelligentsia class. Okay, listen to this section. When the rough edges are worn off the new land, businessmen and lawyers come in to help with the development to solve problems of ownership usually by re removing the temptations to themselves. What do you think this that means? Okay, I'll read it again. So this is on pioneers versus the intelligentsia class. When the rough edges are worn off the new land, businessmen and lawyers come in to help with the development to solve problems of ownership usually by removing the temptations to themselves. Hmm. Do you have any... I read that section and I said, what the heck does that mean? Do you have any ideas? Hmm. So it's talking about new territories where you have pioneers, uh, people coming in like uh, farmers to farm the land. And so then they develop the land a little bit more like the Salinas Valley. And then you have businessmen and lawyers come in to help uh, to push the development further. And then it says to solve the problems of ownership, usually by removing the temptations to themselves. So I think that's kind of suggesting that you that you have a pioneering type folk that are mostly like farmers and then you have a bit more predatory class of uh, capitalists that come in at that time to manage things uh, we would call them the intelligentsia class you know these are people that that wear suits and deal with paperwork instead of doing doing manual labor but it's saying that they are 
usually by removing the temptations to themselves. And that's the part that kind of throws me for a spin on this one. Because I'm like, no, they don't remove the temptations to themselves. They they add to the temptations to themselves. They tend to create a, a bureaucratic maze that uh, pioneering working class type people can't really navigate so that the intelligentsia class can enrich themselves a bit more. Well, the people from, uh, with the suits, John, as far as I remember correctly, from many movies, they tend to forcefully um, rob the pioneers from their land. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... We watched American Outlaws mm -hmm. like two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And you remember how they were forced to give up their land. Right, they're in Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. It was exactly during the First World War. Yeah. So it doesn't... Or that was during the Civil War, actually. Or that was prior to the Civil War. Oh, or yeah, it was... Okay, it was prior to some war. Yeah. Okay. So the book, uh, as we've talked about, it's, it's, it's a bit of a biblical analogy. It's not exactly a bit, it's, it's not exactly. You're not talking at all about Cal and Aram. Oh, about the, okay, about the two brothers. Oh boy, we might have to do another book review because I don't have that much, I don't have that much on those two. When I read this book, to me, the three main characters were Kathy, Adam, and Lee. They were the characters that I that I thought were... Actually, actually, I'll get to Cal a little bit. I'll get to it. So in the book, yeah. So for example, let's see. He says here, Look, Samuel, I mean to make a garden of my land. Remember, my name is Adam. So far, I've had no Edom, Eden, let alone been driven out. So yeah, so the idea is that they are they are east of Eden and in the Bible it says that when Adam and Eve sin, then they get then they get sent east of Eden. They get kicked they get kicked out. So that's where the title of the book comes from. And I thought that the language in the book was really beautiful. So I'll quote from a it few is. things as we draw towards the end of this book review. Okay. Mr. Edwards was essentially a simple man, but even a simple man has complexities which are dark and twisted. Catherine was clever, but even a clever woman misses some of the strange corridors in a man. And what I did while I was reading this book was I actually, here's a study hack for all of you students that are out there. I used the Super Memo app, which is this, it's essentially like a flashcard app where if you're reading on your Kindle or on your smartphone, you copy and paste passages or words, vocabulary items that you want to remember into the Super Memo app. And then it has this algorithm that prompts you to remember what you need to remember at the optimal intervals using a, a very clever uh, algorithm that was developed by a, a, some type of Polish scientist. And it's actually something that is, uh, it's, I've been using it to build my vocabulary in English and also in my, my third language. Nauczyk, Nauczyk Oste Malko Bulgarski. Nauczyk. Nauczyk. No, Nauczyk. Nauczyk. Oste Malko Bulgarski. It's not Nauczyk. It doesn't really cut it. I have, I have a ways to go. I have a ways to go with the Bulgarian, mm -hmm. as you all can tell. Okay, so here's the one story of the book. Do you want to read this passage, babe? Okay. Okay, hold it. I believe that there is one story in the world and only one that has frightened and inspired us so that we live in a pearl-white serial of continuing thought and wonder. Humans are caught in their lives, in their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, in their avarice and cruelty, 
and in their kindness and generosity too, in a net of good and evil. I think this is the only story we have and that it occurs on all levels of feeling and intelligence. Virtue and vice were warp and woof of our first consciousness. Woof, woof. <laughs> and they will be the fabric... Unfortunately, your dog doesn't woof, so we can't use her as a sound effect at this point. <laughs> and they will be the fabric of our last, and this despite any changes we may impose on field and river and mountain, on economy and manners. There is no other story a man after he has brushed off the dust and chips of his life will have left only the hard, clean questions. What is, was it good or was it evil? Have I done well or ill? We have only one story. All novels, poetry, all, all novels, all poetry are built on the never-ending contest in ourselves of good and evil. And so this is kind of saying the same thing that Solzhenitsyn, 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 Solzhenitsyn said, where he said the battle lines between good and evil are drawn across the heart of every man. Actually, I think I misquoted that just a bit, but you all get the kind of the point. So the one story is about free will. <clears throat> the book delves into the question of free will and ancestry. How much free will do we really have to chart our own course in life? Or are we just destined to do the dance in life that our genes have choreographed for us? And as I've written about elsewhere, genes are to mitochondria what predetermination is to free will. And my contention is that unless you do a lot of biohacking of your health and also habituate mindfulness, which is uh, like meditation, then you're not really practicing free will in your own life. So you all are going to want to go and check out the book reviews that I did of Headstrong, where I delve a bit further into this. I get a bit more philosophical about it. And then I also get real practical and real pragmatic about it, about how we, how we can biologically grab the free will that I think we all deserve. Like Adam Trask and the original Adam from the Bible, thoughtlessly naive men certainly surrender their free will. And I think the, the big problem with the world is that a lot of people are not, uh, are not using f their free will properly. The book makes the nuanced point that bad blood, which is to say ancestry and genetics, do make a difference in our course in life, but that we all ultimately have some choice on the matter. So this is the part talking about his second son, Cal. Yeah. Can you describe his second son a bit? Well, his second son is um, a very troubled young man, very attractive. And he... Okay, he's not identical twin with his brother, Aaron. While Aaron is the good one, mm -hmm. and he's always virtuous, he helps his father a lot, he listens to his father a lot, he reads his Bible, you know, he does everything to the T right. Cal is not like this. He's mischievous, he... Um, drinks. He drinks, and all the girls in the Salinas Valley are after him. Just because he's so attractive. Mm -hmm. And not because of just his looks, but his behavior is attractive. Mm -hmm. Because he's acting like the bad boy. Right. Yep. And he thinks that he resembles his mother. Yeah. So he has some self-awareness. He has a dark side, but he has self-awareness that his 
uh, mother's monstrousness can manifest in him. And he has a, he seems to have a desire to choose the light side. So in Cal, which is the, he's the genetic culmination of the two main characters, we see him being able to choose. And then the book ends with a book, with a word that I didn't recognize when I first read it. Tim Shell. Oh, it's explained. Yeah. But when I, when I got to the end of the book, I didn't, I didn't know what that word meant. I, th- I thought maybe there was, he was saying, time shall tell. No, no, no. It's explained earlier in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I, I actually had to, because the book is so long, I had forgotten about that. And I had to go and do a, a search, a cross-reference in the book, and find the other section where we have Tim Shell. And so the word Timshell is a Hebrew word. And Adam coughs it out on his deathbed when his troubled son asks for his blessing and essentially his kind of encouragement in defying his genetics, in defying his mother's monstrous nature. Well, actually, if I have to be honest, I think that throughout the whole book, Cal's um greatest desire is to appeal to his father and to win him over and to win his love. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's totally his kind of his driving desire. That, that's what he strives for during the whole book and that's why he tries to compete with his brother Aaron. Mhm. And this is this is a biblical analogy also, because it's reflective of where you have Cain and Abel, and uh, which are the sons, and then uh, one of the sons is trying to appease his father, is trying to appease God, but he fails to do so. And then at that point, God tells him that you have sin waiting, you have sin, evil, rage, you have all these... Uh, all all the toxic masculinity to use a 2020 word. You have you have all this all this toxic basal animalistic human nature that is waiting for you uh, that will devour you that'll take your life in a bad direction. But you have free choice to choose between that and choose and and be a more enlightened, more conscious, uh, be a better be a better person. And this Hebrew word, uh, timshel, it translates to thou mayest, which is, yeah, the idea of free will, of uh, self-determination. So his father is ultimately suggesting to him, I'm not exactly sure if his father is saying, yes, I give you my blessing. I think he's more kind of saying, you can choose my blessing if you want to. Which is, of course, really, actually, that's a pretty empowering thing. That's a, that's a good thing for any father to, you know, grant to. You can his choose son. what to become. Yep, yep, if, yep. If you want to define your genes, your your evil mother's genes, you can do that. Yep. Yeah, that's what that's what he's saying. So it's ultimately he kind of redeems himself on his on his deathbed by you know leaving a real philosophical nugget with his son to chart his own course towards the uh, light side in life. So I ultimately gave this book four stars instead of five stars. Um, It's a beautifully written look into American history. I did enjoy reading it. I'm glad that you recommended it to me, babe. But I, I have to detract a star from it because it's a little slow. It's a, it's a long book. And it's a, it's a grand arc of a, of a story, but it sort of lacks much action or very compelling hook points. So I, I can see how people might have a, a bit of trouble reading this book. Cause yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's just a bit slow. It took a bit of commitment for me to get all the way, all the way through it, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. What do you think, babe? Oh, yes, but Steinbeck obviously had a lot to say. 
Yeah, and he, so he was from there. So he was essentially writing about the place, the place that he was from. And I imagine... Is he from California, really? He was from Salinas Valley, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I must have missed that or forgotten it. I'm pretty sure he was. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that's where he was from, especially cuz in the book he mentions the Steinbecks. He it seems he seems to have his family as kind of a tangential family to the story in the book. Hmm, that's possible. Okay, okay, makes sense. Yeah. So, I hope you all enjoyed this book review. I hope you all enjoyed the book. Go read it if you have not already. If you If you have the time to do so, I'm Jonathan. And I'm his wife. And we look forward to a continued conversation with you.